Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Over the last eight years of working on this show, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem, New York, has come up in a lot of my work. Research into the Tulsa Massacre, referenced documents in the Schomburg collections. Research into Red Summer included one of the center's online exhibitions. When I researched Shirley Chisholm, that referenced an interview in the Schomburg Center's oral history tape collection. Uh, A while back, we interviewed John B. King Jr. about the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. He took that document on a seven-city tour that started at the Schomburg Center. So I've personally used the Schomburg Center's online resources, and then the center is also just all over the footnotes and the papers that I have read for this show. I just put the word Schomburg into the the folder where I have a ton of stuff saved, and it was like, blah, here's 35 documents that all have the word Schomburg in them somewhere. So honestly, I'm really embarrassed that it has taken me this long to wonder, wait, who is Schomburg? And that happened thanks to stumbling across the name Arturo Alfonso Schomburg in another context and then wondering, is that the same person that the Schomburg Center is named after? It was the same person. He was an Afro-Puerto Rican activist and collector. And Jamaican-American historian and journalist Joel Augustus Rogers nicknamed him the Sherlock Holmes of Negro history. Having researched his life and work now, I'm just really annoyed that his name was not immediately familiar to me the very first time I ever heard of the Schomburg Center. Uh, He is far less well-known than a lot of his contemporaries from the Harlem Renaissance are today. So uh, we're going to try to rectify that a little bit with this episode. Arturo Alfonso Schomburg was born on January 24th, 1874, in what's now the Santurce neighborhood of San Juan, Puerto Rico. His mother was Maria Josefa, a freeborn woman from San Croix who was a midwife and a laundress. His father is often cited as Carlos Frederico Schomburg, who was born in Puerto Rico and had German ancestry. Arturo's parents were not married, uh, and it doesn't seem that he ever met or was legally acknowledged by his father. Arturo also had a younger sister named Dolores. At the time, Puerto Rico was a Spanish colony, and although there were schools, there was no free public education system accessible to everyone yet, and most of the schools that did exist charged tuition. It's possible that Schomburg spent some time at one of these schools, although the records that could have confirmed that were destroyed when the United States invaded Puerto Rico in 1898. It seems that most of Schomburg's education was more informal, so things like clubs and study groups and self-study at libraries. But he described one of the experiences that had a particular impact on him as happening in a fifth-grade classroom. They did not learn about any Black figures when studying history, and he asked the teacher if Black people had a history. And she said no, so he decided that one day he would prove her wrong. At one point, Schomburg's mother returned to St. Croix, so he spent some time there while growing up as well. But a lot of his more formative experiences took place in Puerto Rico. 
Puerto Rican journalist Jose Julian Acosta was one of Schomburg's mentors and had a huge influence on him. Acosta had been part of the abolition movement before the Spanish Assembly abolished slavery in Puerto Rico in 1873. That was just the year before Schomburg was born. Another big influence was Salvador Brau. Like Schomburg, Brau was an autodidact, and in spite of being self-taught, he went on to be Puerto Rico's official historian. Brau's work in history also included the contributions of Black people when many other histories did not. Schomburg eventually became an apprentice at a print shop in San Juan, and at the age of 17, he moved to New York City. There aren't really any details documented anywhere of what led him to make this decision, and especially to go apparently by himself. He arrived there on April 17, 1891, carrying some letters of introduction. These included one from Puerto Rican nationalist Jose Gonzalez Font, who was his boss at the print shop, and from tabaqueros, or cigar workers, in Puerto Rico. He lived in New York for most of the rest of his life after this, moving from Manhattan to Harlem and then to Brooklyn. When Schomburg arrived in New York, the Puerto Rican immigrant community in the United States was quite small, and the idea of a Puerto Rican racial or ethnic identity had not really evolved yet. That started happening more in the 1930s, after more people started moving from the island to the continental U.S. But the Cuban immigrant community was larger, particularly in Tampa, Florida, and in New York City. People had moved from Cuba to the United States at this point for a number of reasons. One was the Ten Years' War, which had spanned from 1868 to 1878. Like Puerto Rico, Cuba was a Spanish colony, and the Ten Years' War was an uprising that's generally marked as the beginning of the Cuban independence movement. People fled this violence and instability, or they were exiled because of their involvement. Tariffs also made it a lot more profitable for companies to import tobacco to the United States rather than importing finished cigars from Cuba. So cigar makers built factories in Florida and New York, and then they hired cigar makers from Cuba to work at them. When Schomburg arrived in New York, the first community he found was among Cuban tabaqueros in Manhattan. He described his own identity as Afro-Borinqueño, which was a Cuban term for Black Puerto Ricans. And many of the tabaqueros were politically very active, continuing to advocate for Cuban independence and providing money and supplies to support a potential armed uprising against Spanish colonial rule. Many Cuban activists also extended their work to include Puerto Rico, since Cuba and Puerto Rico were Spain's two remaining colonies in the Caribbean. Some of the first connections Schomburg made in New York were with Afro-Cuban activist Rafael Serra and with Puerto Rican Flor Berga, and both of them were deeply involved in the independence movements for Spain's Caribbean colonies. He also became a friend and collaborator with Cuban revolutionary Jose Martí. Along with other activists, Schomburg and Serra co-founded Las Dos Antillas, or The Two Islands, on April 3, 1892. This organization contributed money, medicine, and weapons to independence fighters on both islands. Schomburg served as the organization's secretary. He also traveled to New Orleans, which was another locus of Cuban independence activity, in 1892, and joined the Puerto Rican section of the Cuban Revolutionary Party. In addition to his work in the independence movement, Schomburg also taught Spanish while taking night classes at a high school and studying English. 
He joined a predominantly Spanish-speaking Masonic lodge called El Sol de Cuba, number 38, in 1892. This lodge was affiliated with the Prince Hall Masons, which was established as a branch of Freemasonry for Black Americans in 1784. Schomburg had become a leader in this lodge by 1910. And then he also worked at a variety of different jobs, including being an elevator operator, a bellhop, and a messenger. On June 30th, 1895, Schomburg married Elizabeth Hatcher, who was known as Bessie, and she was a Black woman from Virginia. They would go on to have three children, Maximo Gomez, Arturo Alfonso Jr., and Kingsley Garionex. Elizabeth died in 1900, at which point their children went to live with her family in Virginia. An armed uprising started in Cuba in 1895. And in 1897, amid active fighting in Cuba, Spain applied the rights of Spanish citizenship to both Cuba and Puerto Rico, including giving men over the age of 25 the right to vote. And then on November 25th of that year, Spain also gave Puerto Rico the right to self-government, with the first elections under that new system held in March of 1898. The ongoing conflict between Cuba and Spain was also sparking tensions between Spain and the United States. Spain's efforts to put down the Cuban uprising were widely covered and sometimes sensationalized in the U.S. press. Demands for the U.S. to intercede in Cuba grew after the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor on February 15, 1898. By April, Spain and the U.S. were at war. And this conflict is often called the Spanish-American War, but since the U.S. was entering an ongoing conflict between Spain and Cuba, it is also called the Spanish-Cuban-American War. Yes, occasionally people will also include the Philippines in that since the Philippines was involved with all of this and had its own outside the scope of this podcast uh, stuff happening. So this war formally ended with the Treaty of Paris on December 10th, 1898. And under the terms of this treaty, Cuba became independent while Spain ceded Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines to the United States Uh, That means that Puerto Rico's time as an autonomous island had really been pretty short-lived. Obviously, this is the absolute thinnest of overviews of all of this, but the end result was that the independence movement that Schomburg had been so involved with in the United States mostly came to an end. Cuba had become independent, although it was still occupied by U.S. troops. And many, but certainly not all, of the Puerto Rican community had started to focus more on cooperation with the U.S. rather than independence, and divisions started to really grow within that part of the movement. The last meeting of the Puerto Rican section of the Cuban Revolutionary Party was held on August 2nd, 1898. And at that meeting, its members voted to dissolve it. Las Dos Antillas dissolved as well, and some of the people involved with these and other organizations returned to the Caribbean. Some, like Jose Martí, had already returned and had been killed in the uprising. But others remained in the U.S. and shifted their attention toward socialism, labor rights, or other social and political issues. Schomburg shifted his attention some as well, and we will get to that after a sponsor break. After the end of the Spanish-Cuban-American War, Alturo Alfonso Schomburg turned more of his attention to looking for works by Black writers, artists, and historical figures from all over the world and collecting and documenting that work. 
This really wasn't new for him. He had studied and worked with numerous collectors and bibliophiles, many of whom were mostly self-taught like he was. And they were all collecting and documenting books and articles and artwork and other works that were related to their own lives and communities. Schomburg had a really good memory and he had a knack for seeking out information and he put that to use trying to build a collection that would demonstrate the achievements of Black people all over the world. At this point, this was not something that he could turn into a paying job, though. In 1901, he got a position as a clerk at a law office, and he told people that he was studying for the bar. But because of his lack of formal education, or at least the lack of any documentation of one, he was denied from taking it. On March 17, 1902, he got married again, this time to Elizabeth Morrow Taylor, a Black woman from North Carolina. They went on to have two children, Reginald Stanfield and Nathaniel Jose. In 1905, Schomburg made a trip back to Puerto Rico and also visited the Dominican Republic. And in 1906, he was hired at Bankers Trust Company, and he would work there for more than 20 years. He started out as a messenger and worked his way up to being a supervisor of the Caribbean and Latin American mail section. Especially at the start of his career there, this job really didn't pay him very much. But it did give him enough money to buy books and documents and artwork for his collection. He also did some of his writing, because he wrote a lot, which we're going to talk more about in a bit, Uh, He did some of his writing and his collecting on on company time, sometimes really to the annoyance of his own supervisors. He has some letters that he's written to friends that kind of read like, man, my boss will not get off my case because I'm trying to track down this book right now. (laughs) (laughs) By the early 19-teens, Schomburg was becoming widely known in New York for that growing collection and his research into Black history. In 1911, he co-founded the Negro Society for Historical Research with journalist and pan-Africanist John Edward Bruce, also known as Bruce Grit. Bruce served as president, and Schomburg served as secretary and treasurer. Like Schomburg, Bruce was an autodidact. He had been enslaved from birth in 1856 and had largely educated himself after the U.S. Civil War. According to its charter, the Negro Society for Historical Research was established, quote, to show that the Negro race has a history which antedates that of the proud Anglo-Saxon race. Although David Fulton was formally tapped to be the society's librarian, Schomburg ultimately took on a lot of that work. Over the course of the society's existence, Schomburg collected about 300 volumes for its library. And when the society eventually disbanded, Schomburg folded those into his own collection, which was housed in his home, but was something that he made available for other people to use. In July of 1913, Schomburg delivered a paper to the teacher's summer class at Cheney Institute in Pennsylvania. That's now Cheney University and is recognized as the oldest historically Black college or university in the United States. This address was titled Racial Integrity, a Plea for the Establishment of a Chair of Negro History in Our Schools and Colleges, etc., It called for universities to have chairs of Black history, just like for any other subject, and to adopt standards that included, quote, the practical history of the Negro race from the dawn of civilization to the present time. He went on in this address to walk through the contributions of various Black writers and thinkers who were largely omitted from history texts before continuing, quote, 
We need in the coming dawn the man who will give us the background for our future. It matters not whether he comes from the cloisters of the university or from the rank and file of the fields. We need the historian and philosopher to give us, with trenchant pen, the story of our forefathers and let our soul and body with phosphorescent light brighten the chasm that separates us. Schomburg saw all this knowledge about Black history as something that could uplift people of African descent all over the world. And his other work touched on that idea as well. Toward the end of World War II, he had some involvement in Marcus Garvey's United Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, although he was never formally a member. His work with Garvey included assisting him with historical research and doing translations between English and Spanish. In 1914, John Wesley Cromwell and John Edward Bruce recommended Schomburg for membership in the American Negro Academy. The American Negro Academy was established in 1897 by John Wesley Cromwell, and its founding members included W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Its purpose was to produce and promote academic scholarship by and for Black people. Schomburg became its president in 1920, serving in that role until the Academy was disbanded in 1928. Schomburg's leadership of the American Negro Academy was criticized by some of its members. The organization already seemed to be starting to wane when he became its president. But his light complexion and his Puerto Rican upbringing led some people to question whether he was Black enough to be there. John Edward Bruce had recommended him for membership, but when it came to his presidency, he described Schomburg as a, quote, half-breed who did not, quote, think Black. Schomburg made a point to remind the rest of the Academy that there were Black people all over the world, not just in the United States, and that many were facing similar racism and oppression to what they experienced in the U.S., But that really just fed into perceptions that his attentions and his loyalties were to the Hispanic world and not to the Black community, which really was almost the opposite of the point that he was trying to make. It didn't help that Schomburg had probably overcommitted himself by agreeing to become the Academy's president. He had become the master of his Masonic Lodge, which had been renamed as Prince Hall Lodge in 1914. This name change reflected a demographic shift. The Spanish-speaking membership of El Sol de Cuba had declined, and the lodge had boosted its numbers by recruiting more English-speaking Black members. Schomburg had personally translated the lodge's Spanish-language records and documents into English so that they would still be accessible to its members. He had also become Grand Secretary of the New York State Grand Lodge of the Prince Hall Masons, so between this, the Academy, his day job, and his collecting, which will remind you he also made his home publicly available, he had a whole lot on his plate. Oh, yeah, and also he had gotten married for the third time in 1914 after the death of his second wife. His third wife was Elizabeth Green, and they went on to have three children together, Fernando Alfonso, Dolores Maria, and Carlos Placido. And yes, each of the three women he married was named Elizabeth. In 1918, the Schomburgs moved to a house on what some people would call Kosciusko Street. That street's name is apparently... A matter of much debate. Yes, I watched I watched a whole video of New Yorkers disagreeing on how to say the name of it. But in any case, it is in Brooklyn, uh, and that became part home and part private library. 
Just in terms of people that we've talked about on the show before, the library included Frederick Douglass's newspapers, a signed copy of Phyllis Wheatley's poems along with numerous volumes of her work, Benjamin Banneker's almanacs, Paul Cuffey's journals, letters by Toussaint Louverture, playbills and posters from Ira Frederick Aldridge's stage performances, and an 1803 edition of Ignatius Sancho's letters. I really feel like if there is a figure from Black history we know about today, he had their work in his collection. Sure seems like it. Yeah. So Schomburg had bought some of this work himself while traveling for his work with the Freemasons or through book buyers located in New York. Although he did make a few international trips during his lifetime, it wasn't really something he could do very often on his salary. So he also asked the writers and activists he knew to keep an eye out for particular finds when they were traveling internationally. This included finding Spanish-language work by and about Black people in Spain and in Spain's former colonial territory in the Americas. As we mentioned earlier, Schomburg kept this private collection not just for his own use, but as a resource for others. His private library became both a research collection and a gathering place during the Harlem Renaissance. And we're going to get into that after we have a little sponsor break. The Harlem Renaissance was a cultural and artistic flourishing that was centered around Harlem, New York in the 1920s and 30s. It's also known as the New Negro Movement or the New Negro Renaissance. And in the words of biographer Eleanor DeVerney Sinet, Schomburg was the documenter of the movement, gathering the work of the movement's poets and novelists and musicians and visual artists and others and adding them into his collection. And although Schomburg himself was no longer living in Harlem, the library served as a resource for the people who were creating all of that work. People like Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Bennett and Eric Walrand and Zora Neale Hurston all consulted him in his collection, and he did research work for writer and poet Claude McKay. Schomburg also contributed an essay to Alan Locke's anthology, The New Negro and Interpretation, which is considered one of the seminal texts of the Harlem Renaissance. This essay was titled The Negro Digs Up His Past, and it was first published in Survey Graphic magazine. This is Schomburg's most widely available and widely known piece of writing today, and it became a foundational text for the discipline of Black studies. It begins, quote, the American Negro must remake his past in order to make his future, before going on to say, quote, for him a group tradition must supply compensation for persecution and pride of race the antidote for prejudice. History must restore what slavery took away, for it is the social damage of slavery that the present generations must repair and offset. Schomburg also outlined three outstanding conclusions that had come from extensive study of Black history. Quote, First, that the Negro has been throughout the centuries of controversy an active collaborator and often a pioneer in the struggle for his own freedom and advancement. This is true to a degree which makes it the more surprising that it has not been recognized earlier. Second, that by virtue of their being regarded as something exceptional, even by friends and well-wishers, Negroes of attainment and genius have been unfairly disassociated from the group, and group credit lost accordingly. 
Third, that the remote racial origins of the Negro, far from being what the race and the world have been given to understand, offer a record of credible group achievement when scientifically viewed. And more important still, that they are of vital general interest because of their bearing upon the beginnings and early development of human culture. The year after this essay was published, Schomburg sold his collection to the New York Public Library for $10,000. This was funded by the Carnegie Corporation and brokered by the National Urban League. At the time of the sale, Schomburg's collection was described as a transnational archive of Black culture, and it contained books, poems, sheet music, photographs, newspapers, and other periodicals written in multiple languages, especially English and Spanish. It totaled roughly 5,000 items, many of them quite rare. The collection's first home was at the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library in Harlem, and it was known as the Arthur A. Schomburg Collection of Negro Literature and Art. Schomburg had started to go by the name Arthur sometime after the end of his involvement with the Puerto Rican independence movement, and over time he'd gone from Arthur Schomburg to A.A. Schomburg before circling back around to Arturo towards the end of his life. Schomburg continued to acquire more items and donate them to the New York Public Library after the sale of the collection. He also worked with James Weldon Johnson and a women's group known as the James Weldon Johnson Library Guild to build out a collection of children's books written for and about Black children. But Schomburg acknowledged that in many cases, these books just did not exist yet, and he saw the role of children's librarians as including working toward getting books like that into print. Schomburg used some of the money from the sale of his collection to go to Europe, and there scoured European libraries, especially in Spain, to trace the history of African people in Europe and the Caribbean. This included visiting the Archivo de las Indias in Spain, and he hoped to track down previously unknown Black writers and historical figures in the Spanish-speaking world. So he poured through archives, making note of people described in Spanish words that meant Moorish or Black. He also made a point to view the work of two Black Spanish painters in person, Wanda Pareja and Sebastián Gómez, both of whom had been enslaved for most of their lives. On his return to the United States, he wrote a series of essays about his research experiences in Spain. On January 1st of 1930, Schomburg retired from the Bankers Trust Company. He'd been experiencing headaches and nosebleeds, and that had contributed to his decision to retire. But he didn't stop working. Charles S. Johnson, president of Fisk University in Tennessee, asked him to help build Fisk's collection of Black history and literature. Fisk is a historically Black private university in Nashville, Tennessee, and Schomburg was there for about a year, from 1931 to 1932. Schomburg's work at Fisk was largely funded through the Carnegie Corporation and the Julius Rosenwald Fund. In 1931, Fisk librarian Louis Shores noted that Schomburg had added 4,524 of the 4,630 volumes to the Fisk collection. This had involved purchases of individual volumes and already established collections. Yes, so almost the entire initial collection at the Fisk Library was through Schomburg's research and work. There have also been some questions about his work during this period, though. One was about what was expected of him as the curator of this collection. 
It seems like he hoped to travel and personally acquire more books for the collection, but the university was more expecting him to be on site most of the time. The other had to do with how he was appraising books to potentially be added into this collection. And this later issue is a little bit complicated. Although Schomburg was not an appraiser, he had a lot of experience in buying books. The biggest reason he had been able to get that experience was that book dealers didn't see books by Black authors as valuable. So he was able to afford to buy lots of rare works by Black writers on a pretty modest salary. When Schomburg said that a collection being sold as part of an estate wasn't worthy of the Fisk Library, the collector's widow accused him of misrepresenting the collection's value. Regardless, Schomburg played a huge and important role of establishing the collection at Fisk. Sometime around 1930, Schomburg also started working on a cookbook, which is a favorite topic of the show. He didn't ever finish or publish this work, though, possibly because what he conceived in his mind was really an enormous undertaking. According to his notes, it would not just be recipes, it would be an international history of Black cooking with biographies of notable people and Black folk traditions related to food, along with things like love charms and, quote, signs and superstitions in cookery. That is an enormous scope for a book, and then that was hampered by a lack of primary sources. A lot of the cookbooks that were written and known about at that point had been written by white people, and the very few cookbooks by Black people that were known of were really rare and very hard to find copies of. There's also that problem with cookbooks, which is that they get used, (laughs) and they don't tend to last the way a book in a library would. Um... In 1932, Schomburg traveled to Cuba, where he reestablished his connections to Afro-Cuban leaders and activists and rekindled his sense of Latino identity. He also searched through archives for work by Afro-Cuban writers, and on his return, he published My Trip to Cuba in Quest for Negro Books. Also in 1932, Schomburg returned to the New York Public Library, and this drew some more controversy. W.E.B. Du Bois launched a campaign against it since Schomburg's appointment as curator for the collection that was named for him was effectively going to demote Catherine Allen Latimer, who was the New York Public Library's first Black librarian. Du Bois and his supporters said that this was not about Schomburg as a person, but that it undermined an ongoing effort to get more Black people on staff at New York Public Libraries. And then that circles back around to the idea that although Du Bois used and respected Schomburg's collection, he did not really see Schomburg as authentically Black. We've been focused mainly on Schomburg's acquisition of written texts, but he also thought that visual art was critically important to Black history and the Black experience. He curated shows by Black artists, and in 1934, he tried to raise money to buy a bust of Othello, which he believed to be modeled on Ira Frederick Aldridge. This was a challenge. The United States was just getting out of the Great Depression. But ultimately, attorney and civil rights activist Arthur Springarn donated enough money to bridge the gap in funds. The statue was dedicated on January 30th, 1936. This led to an unfortunate dispute with Aldridge's daughter, Amanda, though. She had written a biography of her father and had asked Schomburg to help get it published. 
And it really seems like Schomburg was just overly optimistic about that project and how quickly it might happen. Two years passed before Amanda asked for the manuscript to be returned, and when she did, she accused him of using it to suit his own ends. This happened shortly before the end of Schomburg's life. He died on June 8th, 1938. He had become seriously ill after having an infected tooth extracted. He was 64 when he died. The Schomburg collection had faced difficulties with resources and funding even before Schomburg's death, and that continued afterward. By the 1960s, some of the materials in the collection were falling into disrepair, in part because the library didn't have a climate-controlled place to store them. But today, the Schomburg Center is regarded as one of the world's foremost research libraries focused specifically on Black culture. It's a library and a research and cultural space, and in 1991, it was expanded to include exhibition galleries and the Langston Hughes Auditorium. In 2015, the library was awarded the National Medal for Museum and Library Service, and it was named a National Historic Landmark in 2017. In addition to historians and academics who use its collections for research, it has also inspired poets, writers, playwrights, filmmakers, and visual artists. According to a 2015 paper by Howard Dodson, Denzel Washington used the center's film collection to study characters and prepare himself for different roles. Yeah, and that paper says he would basically disguise himself (laughs) and go to the film collection. Uh, As for Schomburg himself, he was included in biographical collections of notable Black figures from the 19-teens through the 1930s, but after that point, he mostly fell out of view for decades. The first full-length biography of him was Arthur Alfonso Schomburg, Black Bibliophile and Collector, which came out in 1989. Another book, Diasporic Blackness, The Life and Times of Arturo Alfonso Schomburg by Vanessa K. Valdez came out in 2017. He was also honored with a postage stamp as part of the United States Postal Service's Voices of the Harlem Renaissance series, which just came out in 2020. There has been a surge of academic work about him very recently, though. In 2020, the journal Small Acts published a special section that included multiple articles on Schomburg. The spring-summer 2021 issue of the African American Review is entirely dedicated to him, which Tracy fortunately discovered after she chose the topic, but before she got into the research. That doesn't always happen for us. No, there it really doesn't. There was a whole uh, a whole special issue that was a hundred percent about a historical uh, retrospective on the 1918 flu that came out like right after we finished that episode. <laughs> Uh, So, a lot of the academic work on Schomburg has kind of wrestled with his identity, both as he saw himself and as other people saw him and sort of how to interpret it all. We talked about how he was seen as something of an outsider at the American Negro Academy and how his Latino heritage led at least some people to question his Blackness. During his lifetime, critics also told him to go home to Puerto Rico But kind of the converse of that is also true. He also faced racism and colorism among Puerto Rican and Cuban activist communities because of his African ancestry and his embrace of that ancestry. His use of language was also criticized from every side. Editors often reworked his English language prose extensively. 
Alan Locke once wrote, quote, My good loyal friend Schomburg can gather facts, but he cannot write. He was trained in Puerto Rico on florid Spanish, and his English is impossible. And Spanish speakers criticized his Spanish, even accusing him of forgetting it. But in some cases, it wasn't that he had forgotten anything. It was that he had learned to speak Spanish in Puerto Rico with very little formal education and then moved among communities in the U.S. that were speaking a more hybridized Spanglish, although the term Spanglish, we should be clear, had not been coined yet. The most recent scholarship on him has seemed a lot less focused on trying to quantify Arturo Alfonso Schomburg in kind of an either-or way or interpreting him as a bridge between the Puerto Rican and Black communities. Instead, there's a lot more recent writing that notes all the ways that he was both Black and Puerto Rican, and that really fits right in with his own quest to document the achievements of Black people all over the world, and his remarks on how the history of the Caribbean and Latin America as we know it today would be impossible without Black people. Uh, I'm so glad I just stumbled across his name in a random article and it finally made me go, who is this person who the library I have used so much is named after? (laughs) I'm glad, too. Um, Do you have glad listener mail? I do. I do have listener mail. This is from Nicole. Uh, I am hoping I said that right because it is a slightly uh, unusual spelling. And Nicole says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I just wrapped up the Operation Paperclip episodes and had to email you about Fort Hunt Park, a national park a few miles from Mount Vernon. It's your typical park with horses, trails, softball fields, pavilions, and Spanish-American-slash-World War I-era large gun battlements and a guard tower. There is also a lovely placard noting Operation Paperclip and the other top-secret work that happened there during World War II. It is certainly a shock when you pull into the park and you see the old batteries that have been reinforced for people to explore the outside. The interiors are closed to the public. It's also where we held our wedding reception. Our ceremony was at the World War I monument on the National Mall. It has always been a favorite spot before I met my now husband, and now we often take our daughter there to explore and occasionally lose our keys. It is a striking reminder that history is all around us and woven into our DNA and continues to impact and shape us. I also wanted to mention that you all read mail from my sister after the Bisbee deportation, and I believe she is still ahead of me in the race to keep up to date with your podcast. She mentioned how our mother met Martin Luther King, and I wanted to mention that our mom went on to serve in the Air Force as an intelligence officer during Vietnam. She now spends her time making well over 5,000 wounded warrior quilts, and I'm proud to say my sister has the same skills and kind heart. I am not allowed near a sewing machine. I've attached a few photos from Fort Hunt to get an idea of the scope of the park. Please excuse the photos of the kissing dorks they made us for the awkward engagement photos. And it was 105 degrees, and I was 10 weeks pregnant and 40 years old. Thank you for continuing to share the good, bad, and ugly of our world best, Nicole. Thank you so much, Nicole, for this email. And also for the pictures, I found them to be (laughs) charming. They're very charming. I agree. And I also... (laughs) I looked at one of them and I was like, there's a little twining vine hanging off one of those trees in the background. Is that kudzu? Um, I don't know if it was kudzu or not. It's hard to identify a plant way off in the distance from a from a picture. But anyway, thank you so much for sending these. I had honestly never heard of this park before. Me either. But it does look like a nice place to, to, to wander and explore and, you know, think about all the various ways that history has... Uh, 
has continued to influence us all. So thank you so much for this email. If you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.